All right, let me uh, open us with a brief word of prayer, and then we'll get started this morning. Oh God, we rejoice this morning that once again we have uh, been permitted to come into your house and to worship you today. Lord, we pray now that as we look to your word, as we look to study together, that uh, you would open our minds and our hearts, and that we would submit to your word, and that we would love what you have to teach us. So we pray everything today would be spoken in truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish what you want to do among us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are, of course, continuing our series on the sacraments. We're once again turning to the Lord's Supper. And today we began our theological section on the Lord's Supper. So we've talked about history. We've talked about various important scripture passages. And we've gone through those. And now we're going to sort of take all of that information... And we're going to put it all together here in a nice, concise form. So the way that I've organized this material here for our last major section of this series is we're going to look at the Lord's Supper in four parts. So part one is today. We're going to look at the meaning of the Lord's Supper today and just sort of give a broad overview of our doctrine of the Supper based on everything we've been looking at. And then next week, we'll, just like with baptism, we're going to look at the mode of the Lord's Supper. So next week, we're going to cover such questions you know, that relate to you know, why do we use bread and wine and not you know, hot dogs and Kool-Aid when we participate in the Supper. And you may think that sounds strange, but I have heard of churches that do practice the Lord's Supper with all kinds of ridiculous elements okay, that are not prescribed in Scripture. So we're going to talk about that issue. We'll talk about why we don't give communion to infants or children, why it's reserved for professing believers only. And so we'll just look at various things that relate to the mode of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, you have a question, Robert? One of the issues about 50 years ago, one of the issues that brought about the birth of the PCA was the Catholic Coca-Cola and potato chips. Can you imagine Lord's Supper with those elements? So we'll talk about some of those issues next week and why that is not valid, why we do not do that. All right. So today is the meaning of the supper. Next week is the mode of the supper. Then the third week, we're going to deal with the efficacy of the supper. And so all that means is we're going to look at what we mean when we say that Christ is present in the supper. Remember, we talked about that a little bit last week, but we'll look at it with a little bit more, I hope, um, clarity and depth. Uh, on our third week, and uh, we'll talk about what happens in the supper and why it's important for us as believers. And then the final week, our last week on the doctrine of the sacraments, we are going to just simply ask the question, why do we need the sacraments? So essentially, we're going to be asking the question, why on earth has this you know, extensive look at baptism and the supper, why is this important? You know, why do we need this? And so that will be sort of a very practical conclusion to this series. So, again, I really hope this series uh, has been and will continue to be helpful for for everyone. Because I know, for me, it has been profoundly helpful for me to study these things and to put them all together and then to, to teach them. So I hope it's been somewhat helpful for you, too. All right. Without further ado, then, let's get into our subject for today, which is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. So here we're going to go over what is the Lord's Supper and why do, we, uh, why do we need it. All right. 
Now, we're going to do this in two ways this morning. The first thing we're going to do is like when we dealt with this with baptism, we're just going to ask the general question, what is a sacrament? And so this is going to be somewhat of a review because we've already talked about this before. But again, it's good to, to rehash some of these basic things and really get them ingrained in our minds. So we'll ask, what is a sacrament? And then the second thing we'll do is we'll look at the meaning of the Lord's Supper. So we'll look at the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. What is it? All right. So let's look then. What is a sacrament? We've talked about this before, but I want to emphasize it again. Uh, When we talk about a sacrament, that word sacrament, got to understand, first of all, that the word sacrament doesn't actually show up in Scripture. You can't turn to a verse that says baptism is a sacrament or the Lord's Supper is a sacrament or something. Rather, that word sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which is the word that was used to translate the Greek word in the New Testament, mysterion, or mystery. Now, that word mystery in the New Testament is also never used specifically to refer to baptism or the Lord's Supper, specifically. Almost all the time it refers simply to the mystery of the gospel of Christ, or the message of the gospel, or the doctrines of scripture or something. Paul will use it that way. But what the early church did was whenever they saw in the, the scriptures that the apostles were referring to the mysteries of the faith or something, they included in that category baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because there is a sense in which baptism and the supper are mysteries. There are things we don't understand about them. So they called them mysteries, and therefore they called them sacraments in the Latin. And that's how we get that term today. So all that being said, when we talk about sacraments, that word sacrament is not a biblical word, strictly speaking, but it's a theological word, much like the word trinity. We don't see the word trinity in scripture, but we use it because it describes biblical doctrine. There's nothing wrong with using non-biblical terms when we're talking about theology or when we're trying to understand the Bible, okay? So, all of that to say, the word sacrament is a theological word. And that word is a word that we use to refer specifically to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because we see that baptism and the Supper have something in common. And so what is it that they have in common? Well... Westminster Confession identifies what they have in common, and that is that a sacrament is comprised of two things. We've talked about this all throughout this series. What are the two things that a sacrament is? That's right. Thank you, Kathy. A sign and a seal. All right. Now, what does that mean? We've talked about this. A sign is a visible representation of an invisible reality. It's a visible sign of an invisible reality. So take, for example, the doctrine of the gospel, of of Jesus dying for our sins. That is, I mean, it happened in history, yes, but the the application of it to us spiritually is something we can't see. We can't, like, literally see our sins being washed away. That's something invisible. We can see that the scripture teaches it, but we can't see it with our eyes or, or touch it with our hands or something. So a sacrament, then takes that promise of the gospel, namely that we have forgiveness of sins in Christ and and other promises, and it makes those promises visible. It shows us the promises. 
So like when we look at baptism, we see the water being poured over the head of a child. What do we see in that? We see the doctrine of the gospel. We as helpless children receiving forgiveness of sins. That's what baptism is showing us visibly. So that's what we mean when we say the sacraments are a sign. They're showing us the promises of God in the gospel in a visible way that we can see, that we can touch, that we can taste. And so the sacraments are a sign. But the sacraments are also, as Kathy said, a seal. So when we talk about a seal, we're saying that the sacraments are more than just a sign. They don't just show us the gospel, but rather they actually seal the gospel on our hearts and on our consciences and on our minds. And they do this by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is why we say that the seal, the sealing aspect of a sacrament is the work of the Holy Spirit sealing, impressing, and applying the promises of God in the gospel on our hearts. And so the result of what happens then in the sacrament is our faith is strengthened and increased because of the work of the Spirit, sealing the promises of God on our heart. Therefore, we believe them more strongly. You see that? So that's why we say the sacraments increase faith. They seal the promises of God on our heart. All right? So that's what a sacrament is. It's a sign and a seal, a visible representation, and the Spirit works through it to strengthen our faith. All right? We've talked about all this. Maybe you're sick of hearing that over and over again, but I'm just trying to stress the importance, right? We get the basics down. That's what a sacrament is. Now, uh, a sacrament then is not only a sign and seal, but it also then has some has sort of an implication that the confession, the Westminster Confession identifies. And that is this, that sacraments actually distinguish those who are part of the church from those who are not part of the church. Some Christian traditions express this truth by saying that, you know, the Lord's Supper is a public declaration of faith in Christ. And it is. When we partake of the supper, we are saying we are not unbelievers. We are not part of the world. We are united in Christ, and we have communion with Christ. So we're declaring that. Now, that's not all the supper is. It's not just a public declaration of faith in Christ. It was much more than that, and we'll get into that. But that is part of the function of the supper. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons why when the Apostle Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians... He makes it so abundantly clear that the supper is for believers. Because what happens when an unbeliever comes to the supper? They, quote, eat and drink condemnation upon themselves. Why? Well, there are a host of reasons, but one reason is because when an unbeliever comes to the supper, he is the archetype hypocrite. When the unbeliever comes to the supper, he is the greatest of all liars. Because as he comes to the supper, he is declaring to everyone around him, I believe in Christ. But yet in his heart, he doesn't. He's the greatest hypocrite. The greatest of liars. And so instead of receiving the benefits of the Lord's Supper, the working of the Holy Spirit, sealing the promises of God on his heart, instead he receives condemnation. Because he is a hypocrite. All right? So... That is one function of a sacrament. 
and of baptism in the Lord's Supper then, to distinguish those who are part of the visible church from those who are not. All right? All right, and then the last thing about a sacrament that's really important to emphasize, and this is very different from other Christian traditions, is that in Reformed theology, we emphasize the fact that when we talk about the sacraments being a seal, that is that there is a spiritual work in the sacraments, which we've talked about, we do not mean that the sacraments themselves are doing the spiritual work. We believe that it is the Holy Spirit working through the sacraments that is doing the work. Now that may seem like sort of a a, a technical distinction, but that's really important. For the Roman Catholics, for example, you know, they believe that when, when they uh, practice baptism, when they administer baptism or the Lord's Supper or any of the other sacraments that they have, the sacraments themselves are working the spiritual power. They say by the working of the work, by the performing of the baptism, the spiritual thing happens. We say, no, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in baptism. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in the Lord's Supper. That is doing these things. Okay. That's really, really important. All right, so that's a sacrament. And just to wrap up our definition here of a sacrament, we can say a sacrament is a sign and a seal of the promises of God in the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with the Word of God, which strengthens our faith in the promises in the gospel. All right? That's a sacrament. Now, everything I've said about a sacrament, we've already talked about. We went over all of this in our baptism section. We've been going over bits and pieces of it throughout this series. But I just want to bring it all together here and say, that's what a sacrament is. Now, let's turn specifically at this point to the Lord's Supper. How does the Lord's Supper fit into this sacrament category? And what are some of the things we can say about the Supper as we just sort of, sort of summarize what it is? And what I'm going to do as we talk about the supper as a sacrament is I basically want to uh, plagiarize the Westminster Confession, chapter 29, Uh, which is an okay thing to do. It was a document that was meant to be plagiarized, and that's what I'm doing. I'm going to teach what that document says. So um, there are a number of things that our confession teaches about the Lord's Supper that are really helpful for us to understand. The first thing about the Lord's Supper that we want to note is that The Lord's Supper is a sacrament that is to be observed by the church until the end of the world. The Lord's Supper is to be observed until the end of the world. And why, why is that? Why is it that the Supper doesn't pass away until Christ's second coming? Well, we actually see that in Luke 22. And you don't have to turn there, but let me just read for you Luke 22 verses 15 and 16. We looked at this passage a couple weeks ago. Here, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And as he's sitting down with them, he's partaking of the Passover feast, and he's about to to institute the Lord's Supper for the first time and explain his person and work. Jesus says this. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again. Until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So right away then, as Jesus institutes the supper, he's explaining he's not going to eat at this supper again until 
the end. Until the kingdom of God comes in glory. Until his second coming is what he's saying. And really what he's referring to here, if we press it even further, is he's referring to what John describes in Revelation chapter 19. You can turn here if you want to. I want to read Revelation 19, verses 6 and following. There's a few verses here. And it's here in Revelation 19 that we see ultimately what the Lord's Supper is pointing forward to. Normally when we think of the Supper, we're just thinking about how it points back to Jesus' death. And it certainly does that. We'll talk about that in a second. But we ought not to forget that one of the first things that Jesus says when he institutes the Supper is, Look forward. Look forward to my second coming. Look forward to the full revelation and consummation of the kingdom of God that is coming in the end. That's what this meal is pointing forward to. And we see what Jesus is talking about in Revelation 19, verse 6 and following. Here's what John says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So you see there what John's talking about. In the very end, he describes this great feast that we as Christians will partake of with Christ. This is the feast that Jesus was talking about when he instituted the supper. He said, I'm not going to eat this supper again until we get to the end when the kingdom of God has come and I will eat of this with you forever in eternity. And this, by the way, understanding this point is really important for understanding why we observe the Lord's Supper in the way that we do. For example, when we partake of the supper today and in this church, we get a little piece of bread or cracker or whatever, right? And we get a little bit of wine. Well, we talked about a few weeks ago that, you know, the Lord's Supper, in a sense, is a celebration feast. So maybe what we should do is instead is we should, we should celebrate the supper with a feast, with lots and lots of bread and lots and lots of wine. Why don't we do that? Well, the reason is Jesus' words in Luke 22 and Revelation 19. Because when Jesus instituted the supper, he didn't institute a feast with them. He took one piece of bread. And he broke small pieces and gave it to the disciples. He took one cup of wine and the disciples drank from the one cup. A few sips each. Why didn't Jesus institute a full feast? Uh, It's because the full feast is yet to come. The whole point of the supper is not just to look back at Christ, but to look forward to the coming meal that we will have in heaven with him. And so in anticipation of that great feast, the full feast that Christ is giving us when the kingdom of God is fully consummated in the end of the world. As we look forward to that in anticipation, we eat just a little bit now. Now there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is here right now, but it's fuller sense 
is that it is not here and it is coming. And so we look forward to that by eating just a little taste of that marriage supper of the Lamb that Jesus was looking forward to when he instituted the supper. Okay? So that's really important because there are some who've wanted to change how we, not in this church I'm saying, but just in, in the general Christian world, they wanted to change how we observe the supper and, and observe it with an actual feast. Well, they're kind of missing the point of what Jesus was doing. Jesus doesn't want us to have the feast now. He wants us to anticipate the coming feast later. So that's why we observe it the way that we do. All right, so that's the first thing about the supper. It's looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And that's why we observe it until the end of the world. Because we observe it until what it signifies has been completely and totally fulfilled. All right? So that's the first thing. Second thing about the Lord's Supper we want to note is that the supper is also for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ in his death. And here's where we see the looking back aspect. In the supper, we not only look forward to the second coming of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb, but we look backward to Jesus' first coming when his body was broken and his blood was shed. This is, of course, when Jesus instituted the supper. He emphasized this point saying that he would be the Passover lamb that would take away the sins of the world. And this is really important to remember, that the supper is also for remembering the death of Christ and what happened there. Because quite frankly, we as sinful human beings, we've got really bad memories. We have got very faithless hearts at times. We're forgetful about the blessings that God has for us. We're forgetful about the blessings that God has already given to us. And so the supper, as we observe it over and over and over again throughout our lives, is purposely meant to be that way so that it will be, every time we partake, a continual reminder of the promises of God. As surely as you eat that bread and drink that cup, you are eating and drinking of Christ in the gospel. As surely as you partake of the supper, you have received the forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ. That's the point of the supper. A perpetual remembrance of of what Jesus did because we have weak faith and we need the sacraments for this reason. We'll return to this in our last uh, session when we look at why we need the sacraments uh, in a few weeks. All right third thing about the sacraments that's really important is that they seal all of the benefits of Christ unto true believers and they are for our spiritual nourishment and growth. We could summarize that sort of wordy description there by just saying they strengthen our faith. They strengthen our faith. And we need that. Because when we're confronted in the world, you know, with, with the devil and his minions and the work of the unbelieving world, and even our own unbelieving hearts, we need the sacraments to continually strengthen us as we seek to serve God, as we seek to obey Him, as we seek to be faithful to Him, and as we seek to persevere in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And this is where we can say, in a certain sense, now again, I'm going to carefully qualify this, but we can say, in a certain sense, that the sacraments, and especially the Lord's Supper here, since that's what we're talking about, 
are necessary for salvation. Now again, I'm carefully qualify this. The sacraments are necessary for salvation. Not because they are necessary for justification. No. We are justified through faith in Christ. Not by partaking of a sacrament. But the sacraments are necessary not for justification, but they're a necessary part of our sanctification. They are a way that God works to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our obedience, and to preserve us in the Christian faith. That's why we say there's a real spiritual work happening in the sacraments. God, as he strengthens our faith in the promises through his spirit in the Lord's Supper, is preserving us in the faith. And this is why Reformed theology has always maintained that the sacraments offer nothing to us that the Word of God does not. Let me say that again. The sacraments offer nothing to us that the Word of God doesn't. When we come to the Word of God, is it not the Spirit who works as we read and as we hear the Word of God preached? Does the Spirit not work in us to strengthen our faith in the promises offered in the Word? Absolutely. That's why we come every Sunday to hear His Word taught, to hear His Word preached. The Spirit is working through that. When we come into the sanctuary this morning and we hear Robert give the message, the Spirit of God is working as he preaches the word to strengthen our faith in the promises offered in that word. The same thing happens in the sacraments. The sacraments are not a written word. They are a visible word. And as the sacraments present that visible word of God, the Spirit is working to strengthen our faith in the promises declared in that visible word. So that's really important. We need the sacraments. They are part of our sanctification. And we ought not to neglect them. All right, so that's, that's the third thing. Fourthly then, another important aspect of the sacraments is that they are for the further engagement in and to all duties which we owe to Christ. Translation of that, they strengthen our fruitfulness. They strengthen our obedience to Christ. And this is an aspect of the Lord's Supper that we don't often think about. Normally when we talk about strengthening faith, that's all we think of. But remember, Martin Luther during the Reformation had a wonderful doctrine of faith and works. You remember, Luther was all about justification by faith alone, wasn't he? That was his great message against the Roman Catholic Church that had strayed from Scripture. Rome wanted to say, we are justified by our works. Luther wanted to say, no, we are justified entirely on the basis of the work of Christ by the instrument of faith. That is critical to understanding the gospel, Luther said. But Luther, as he taught that, began to receive criticism from the Roman Catholics. And they said, Luther, if you say that we're justified entirely on the basis of Christ's work... Well, then there's no place for our works then. We don't need the law. People can just accept Christ and then run around sinning like crazy. And Luther said, ah, but hold on a second. You're misunderstanding. We are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith which is alone. In other words, true saving faith brought about in the heart of someone by the Spirit of God will produce fruit. Right? 
And we know that. We've heard this before a hundred times, I'm sure, from pulpits and, and all that here in this church. That's, that is the gospel truth. James tells us this. This is one of James' big concerns in his epistle in the New Testament. He wants believers to understand that a dead faith doesn't save anybody. A dead faith, a faith that doesn't have fruitfulness, a faith that doesn't have works, is not true faith. And so we are justified by faith, and then in joyful response, we will produce fruitfulness. We will produce obedience. Now, not perfectly, of course. Right? We're never going to be obedient perfectly. But the necessary thing which follows justification is sanctification. And that's what the biblical text teaches us. And so then, if the sacraments, and particularly the Lord's Supper, is for the purpose of strengthening our faith, what's going to be the consequence of that? It's the strengthening of the fruit of faith. The strengthening of our obedience to Christ. Now again, not perfectly. We're not teaching legalism here. We're just teaching... That faith produces works. And a stronger faith produces better works. And so what the confession then is is emphasizing to us here. Is that when we partake of the supper. Our faith is strengthened. And we are then emboldened and empowered by the spirit of God. To leave the congregation and to go out. And to live faithful lives to the glory of God. And that's an aspect of the supper I think that it's important to remember. The purpose of coming on Sunday is to hear the word of God and to take the sacraments is not just to tickle our intellects and say, oh, that was a good sermon. Oh, that was good doctrine today. No, good doctrine produces good life. And so we see that then in the scriptures as we study these things. All right. Final thing about the supper as we close here. We mentioned before that the Lord's Supper or just the sacraments in general distinguish the visible church from the world. And here, the last thing that our confession notes about the Lord's Supper that's really important is it says that the Lord's Supper is a bond and pledge of our communion with Christ and a bond and pledge of our communion with each other as the church. Translation of that, it is a declaration that we are in Christ and that we are part of his body here on earth. That's 100% true. When we come to the Supper, we are declaring when we partake of it I am a believer in Christ, and I share in the promises of the gospel. All right, we're out of time this morning. Let me just wrap up by saying this. You can see here, by these things that we've looked at, the Lord's Supper is really important. It is not just this cute little thing that we do over here on the side, just for fun. It is a vital part of our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. It is a vital part of our sanctification. And we need to take it seriously. We need to prepare for it. And we need to think deeply about it. Because it is a wonderful gift of God to us. And we need as much of the gifts of God as we can possibly get. Don't we? Alright, let me close us in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the Lord's Supper, especially this morning. God, we, uh, we know that there are difficult things in the doctrine of the sacraments, stuff that's hard to understand. But Lord, we, uh, we think we can grasp the basics at least. And we can see here that we need your sacraments. We need word and sacrament in our lives. They are gifts from you, precious gifts. 
by which the Spirit of God works in us to strengthen our faith. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would do that in us as we partake of the sacraments in the coming months and years, that our faith be thoroughly equipped to deal with the challenges of life to which you call us. Lord, we pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning and that you would prepare us now to praise and to worship you. Pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.